With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is I Will Make You a Millionaire, another episode helping someone reach their goal of making millions. So as you know, I've been helping people on their path to become millionaires. A lot of people are very creative, but they haven't done necessarily business before. They haven't made a million dollars yet, so they need to learn those skills. So I am sort of teaching them how to think about what it takes to make a million dollars, all the possibilities that are in front of you and all the creativity that's possible. But I have to say, I am learning probably even more than they're learning because everybody I talk to is in a different industry. So I get to learn, like for instance, today is Jason first. He wants to build up in the restaurant industry, whether it means owning a restaurant or as we discovered, alternatives to that. But uh, I've been learning so much about the restaurant business and I hope he's learning about how to make a million, but you could judge for yourself and we'll see over the course of the next year. But here's uh, Jason on his quest for millions. Quietly, Jay is going to become like the first time Jay plays chess, he's going to beat like Every master, <laughs> yeah. So, the underdog, you know. Right. <laughs> Get all the lessons. Do you not play at all, Jay? I I, I know how to play, but I, I'm not like tactics and opening. I just play for fun. Yeah, yeah. So, I think this lesson was good because I think I've been thinking a lot about blunders, and it, but I think the relationship between blunders and strategic plans is is more important than I realize. And thinking in terms of these long-range strategic plans as well as like i like the way you're thinking with hey let's set up as many accents as possible that's the way i like to play and um but when it's in conjunction with a strategic plan there's almost no chance to blunder when that's happening right or it's it's hard i also found my my level of exhaustion has a direct correlation with the amount of blunders i make yeah and and even (laughs) and even calculation it creates exhaustion. So if, if you can make moves that fit in with, you know, well-known plans or well-thought-out plans, you don't have to calculate as much and you can save that energy for later in the game when it's time to destroy the opponent. You just want to yeah. make sure you don't blunder, but the more you're thinking in terms of plans, the less chance to blunder. Yeah, I've been blundering a lot lately. So Me too, everybody. Strategic. Like, there are some days I blunder and I'm like, what? the fuck is going on i just lost 200 rating points 
in blunders and then other yeah. they don't blunder and it's it's just it's random at it, we're playing faster chess than a long range chess so you're gonna blunder more yeah i mean i worked for like i was in restaurants for like 14 hours yesterday so i got home and i was playing those games at like one because i'm obsessed with chess and i think about it all day long while i'm working and i'm like get home i need to get a little bit of chess in and i just play stupid well that but that game was a good game that's why i'm yeah. saying you know i wouldn't even worry so much about and i know this this is easy for me to say because i don't follow this advice but i wouldn't worry so much about the loss when you're, you're learning good strategic things and you played the, you know i find when i first start playing let's say i lose a game that I was winning. I'm like, okay, that was fine. I was playing a 2300 and I came up with a good plan that I now know and I was winning, but I lost at the end, whatever. Then the second game, okay, same thing. Third game, what the? Fourth game, yeah. Robin, um, <laughs> my, did something happen to my IQ? Am I going crazy? And yeah. I have to remember too that, you know, in the long run, the goal is to just be, have a better understanding of chess and, and then the ratings will come when, when that happens, no matter what. Right. My dad always, he says, oh, I can't, I'm like, just play more games against real people. And he's like, oh, I just can't take the losing, which I don't, yeah. I don't mind losing. I more mind making stupid mistakes that I know better. You know, yeah. it's, it's, my, it's about me, not about my opponent. So if I get outplayed, I have no problem with that. I feel like I learned something. That's amazing. That's really what I'm doing it for anyway. But yeah, I play my one minute. Okay. So yeah. How's, let me take out my notes from, from last week. Yeah. Thank you again for taking the time. And, uh, the, oh, I was rereading the transcript and thought it was weird listening to myself. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, so I thought these all these ideas were really good. And there's so many different directions. Like we started going over all the different spokes to the restaurant wheel as opposed right. to just owning a restaurant or consulting. But like yeah. what 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 did it make you think? So, I mean, I think that the I was really kind of the part that I took away most, I guess, was like the who are you, what are you and kind of like why now? Yeah. Um and I guess most specifically, I've been thinking about the why now part. Mm -hmm. um, although, because I kind of know like who I am, I think feel pretty good about that. Um, like my skill set and like all the yeah. things I've learned over the last seven years. The vision I'm always a little bit up in the air about in terms of my focus, I guess, if that makes sense. Uh, that's kind of like choosing the spoke, right? I mean, is that? Yeah, and it's also it's also partly not just choosing the spokes, but naming them. So right. let's say you have a technique you use in chess, and it seems to work. If you don't like, for instance, what I what I call the harassing the queen strategy. There's no book or chapter or about harassing the queen strategy. It's just something I made up. But now that I've put a label to it. I can identify it more easily when it happens. Like, like right. in that one game I showed you that I played, I knew instantly I was going to play the harass the queen strategy. Whereas if yeah. I had never labeled that in my mind, even though I might've played it before, it would have been harder for me to decide to do it or, or recognize it. And so sometimes yeah, when you just label the spokes, you realize, oh, I have more, there's more options. And so the why now becomes easier because you just need to fulfill 
any of the spokes. Right. So I guess like that was really helpful. And, and I guess I had been thinking about it a little bit leading up to our conversation about, you know, how I wanted to, you know, own my own restaurant. That had been my goal for so long, but to kind of recognize that there's actually all these other parts of this industry that I've, you know, acquired a bunch of skills and, uh, have, you know, kind of mastered, uh, at least some parts of it, um, uh, and want to continue to learn obviously on Look, all of it. Can but, I ask you a question mm -hmm. about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, you said you mastered all these skills or learned all these skills. Clearly, restaurant restauranting is not a skill. But what are all the micro skills that makes up a good restaurateur? Because I, I don't know, so I'm just asking out of curiosity. Yeah. So I guess, uh, well, there's tons, but you know, specifically like product knowledge is always a good start. I would like say. how to make how to make good food or what is or knowledge product? of or knowledge about like different types of cooking techniques and uh you know different cuts of meat and uh how flavors typically work together um with you know beverage you know craft cocktail skills um you know so, maybe so i this can't is, this is kind of like the the uh, like you say the, the product is is ultimately what's the restaurant serving so this is almost like bordering on this micro skill of restauranturing is overlaps with cooking skills yeah and uh a little bit too of like it's like your your arsenal of weapons to sell and so the more you know about which weapons you want to use at which times the better you are like what's an example? Uh, like is that like a Valentine's Day? What's our, what's the dinner being? No, served? so I think I think the best example of that is so let's say your check average is a hundred dollars, which is like at a nice restaurant, right? Like so per person, you're roughly at a hundred dollars per person. Um one of the things I love to tell when I was managing to tell other servers and now when I'm serving, I like to use myself. If I can figure out a way to sell a dessert drink, right? A port or an Amaro, you know? And if I can speak on it, like, oh, hey, you just had a great Italian meal. You want to finish it off the traditional Italian way with a nice digestif, maybe a, an Amaro? Um, and they're like, oh, you know, they don't know about it. So I can tell them about it, sell it to them. And then that's 10% extra on their bill. You know, it's a $10 drink. So I just I improved my check average by 10% and I improved my tips by 10%. So this is different from, so it's interesting. Knowledge of cooking is different than what a chef needs to know. Knowledge of cooking from a restaurateur's point of view is different than knowledge of cooking from a chef's point of view because you're oh. intersecting it with the knowledge about what the check means. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, chefs can know that you put this really weird type of pork, like, or you put the chicken neck in uh, a chicken stock and that's what gives it the most flavor. I'm not telling a single guest that, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Because nobody wants to hear about chicken neck at the table. Right. Some people do, but I do, but not the majority of people. So it's totally different. And, you know, I, I know the, I know the buzzwords to hit to, to make us, and it's, it's all true, you know? So what's interesting there is, just you speaking about this, this creates another spoke even, which is imagine software that compares uh, 
check with meal with menu and uses kind of AI based training from experts like, like yourself to suggest sales techniques or, or to suggest what this, you know, to suggest product plus words to use to kind of um, upsell, to make the check higher. Yeah. That's a legit software package. Yeah. Or like a newsletter, you know, type of, type mm. of thing too. Yeah. Like a, one of the more micro. So it creates more uh, newsletters. We talked about. So, so, okay. So, so what's another uh, skill? So there's product knowledge, understanding timing. Ta- you know, timing for sure. Yeah. You know, in terms of reservation turns, in terms of desirability of the meal, like, you don't if you go out to a dinner with a friend, you don't want to be there for four hours, right? Like you want to be there for an hour and a half to two hours. And is that what you meant? Yeah. Yeah. So, so kind of like, so, so basically seating knowledge, like, you know, in different situations, the seat is going to be taken up for different amounts of time. Yeah. And I mean, timing across the board, like knowing how long, uh, I mean, you have to fire court, you know, if you have a first course, you have to tell the kitchen to start working on the second course. When do you do that? You know, mm-hmm. do you do that when they're done with their course or should you do that five or 10 minutes before they're done with their course? Yeah. Right. And it's different for every type of cuisine, you know, so I can tell you to cook a eight ounce filet medium rare, it'll take about 20 minutes on a, on a wood fire grill or 15 minutes because you need to rest it. You need to put it back on, flash it, you know, so it's all what's sorts an- of stuff there. What's another micro scale? Um, I would say staffing is a big one. So knowing how many people you need on any given night, um, you know, there's most restaurants will take walk-ins and it's pretty, it can be inconsistent at times. So you have to kind of ride that line where you don't want people to be bored and not making money, but you also don't want people to be over, you know, Stretch too thin. So, so walk-ins are walk-ins for work. Uh, sorry, walk-ins like we call people that don't make reservations. Mm. Um, so, if you like, hey, you know, last minute, I kind of want to go check out this restaurant. I'll just go there and show up and see if I can get in without a reservation. Right. We call that a, a walk-in. Um, and so, depending on where you're at, like it can be really inconsistent, especially if you're not fully booked every night. If you are fully booked every night, then something you know maybe you don't take any walk-ins at all. Right. Um, but that's I, I've worked at both places that are at full capacity every single night, no matter what, and also places that have empty tables on most nights. And then and the, uh, it's harder to manage the empty tables on most nights restaurants than it is the full ones. How important is? the list of influential people, you know, like build, building a network, uh, having a skill of building a network. So, you know, that you can get people into the restaurant. I mean, I personally think it's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of debate about that. I would say Bocalupo, the Italian restaurant where I'm serving right now, they don't care quite as much mm-hmm. about that because they book, you know, a month in advance, pretty much, you know, fully booked out a month in advance. Most of the people that I see are not regulars that are, that keep coming back. Hmm. There are people that are, have been wanting to try this restaurant for a while and finally have been able to get in. What will happen when 
everybody who wants to try out that restaurant has tried out the restaurant. Uh, it might take a while, but I, that's a good question. <laughs> it, it's pretty small. So it's like, and it's pretty, I don't know. It's pretty, I mean, we definitely have people that come back over and over again, mostly bar regulars, mostly in those kind of the first come first serve type of seating areas, which are very small. And a lot of people, you know, I've, I tried to get somebody in last week and I was having a lot of trouble doing it. Um, cause we were fully committed and, you know, they're not the type of people that are just going to show up, you know, they want to have come in and have a reservation and have a nice meal, um, and be, sh- be guaranteed that they're going to get a table when they walk in the door. Yeah. Um, and then there's other people that are like, I just want to eat there tonight. I'll wait 45 minutes outside with a drink in my hand and wait, wait for a table to open up and hope for the best. And if not, there's a plenty of other stuff in walking distance where I know I can get food. And then I guess there must be some skill in inventory management. Yeah. Inventory management is a big one. Um, you know, pricing, uh, pricing strategies is something I was pretty invested in when, uh, Menu with, design or format. I actually, am, I wouldn't, I would definitely not say I'm an expert in that. Um, but is it a skill? I, of a, of but rest- it is a skill for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about yeah, mater ding? Mater ding, as in seating like, tables, or being able to be the face of the restaurant. Yeah, so that's definitely a skill I have. Um, you know, I, I think that's like a twofold. So one is, uh, you know, if a table walks in at five forty-five, and I need a table back by seven o'clock, that's the only table I could possibly put them at. Do I take the risk? You know, I look, I look at, I look deep into their soul and see if they're going to be there for an hour and fifteen minutes or going to be there for two hours. Um, so that did you ever say I big, need? Do I ever say I need the table back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like to do that as much. Yeah, um, but I will in extreme situations where I'm like, look, I can get you, but you got to have the table back in an hour and fifteen. You go sit at the bar afterwards. Uh, you know, I just, I just really need that table back in an hour and 15 minutes. I don't love saying that just cause I don't want them to feel rushed. I want yeah. them to, you know, be in and out, but, um, but yeah, I've done that before for sure. And then uh, what, uh, what other micro skills might be in restaurant touring? I guess picking a location for a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, which I have no experience in whatsoever, but I think, mm-hmm. I think I have some good ideas about it. Um, you know, there's, the financial analysis. Okay. Um, all right. So I just wanted to kind of list some of those. And so, yeah, so we were talking about the why now. Yeah. So that was really what like got me thinking. And you mentioned, you know, open table exists and will exist and has existed and, uh, you know, reservation system you know, there's part of me that's like, okay, the why now for that is uh, because there's a lot fewer tables mm-hmm. in a lot of restaurants. So it's becoming a, a little bit of an exasper- exacerbated problem. Um, but I don't know how temporary that is. So even if it wasn't temporary, though, it, uh, I mean, even if it was temporary, it's still something that, you know, many restaurants deal with. Right. Um, but more specifically, I think like 
the more I think about it, the more the problem of hiring has become uh, is like a really big, you know, in the present moment. So, so let's talk about that for a second. Or, or first, why, why do you think that? There was so much talk about, you know, restaurants are all going to die, you know, uh, and a lot of them have, and especially in certain cities. Um, but I took why now to mean like why now and why here. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking a lot about Atlanta. Yeah. And what happened was uh, at the start of COVID, I'll tell you my experience. So at the start of COVID, um, I had just been in New York. I saw what was happening. I went to the owner of my restaurant group. I said, look, we need to pivot. Let's do it. Yeah. Spinning wheels for a long time. Nothing happened. Um, and I was getting, you know, uh, I got emotional about it, which I shouldn't have done, but I did. And, uh, I felt what was coming and it was hard for me to separate, you know, my livelihood and my friends and coworkers livelihoods. And so right when we closed, the owners told me I had to put everybody on furlough. So I called everybody and, you know, told them, Hey, look, you kind of have a job here. You kind of don't, I don't know what to tell you. I'm so sorry. We're not going to be paying you anymore. You know, we're going to apply for unemployment for everybody. Um, hopefully the government's going to come through. It was really, you know, back then nobody knew what was going on. Right. And did so you guys, did you guys set up a GoFundMe for the employees? I had some cool ideas that I didn't get approval on. It was a hard time for me. Yeah. I, I was I was feeling like I had all these like I was feeling nervous a little bit, but I was also feeling like very encouraged because I thought the industry needed a shakeup and I thought that there was like a lot of really great opportunities coming. Um the owner of the restaurant ended up doing like a hundred thousand dollars in gift cards that he gave to the staff. And so it was about a thousand dollars per person. It was still a very nice gesture for sure. But a thousand dollars, that's what, you know, my bartenders were making that in three or four days. So yeah, it's, it wasn't a ton. Um, and a lot of my employees, you know, weren't approved for various reasons for unemployment. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, anybody that's not an American citizen struggles. Yeah, I wonder how how they how do they survive? They always survive. They always survive. They pick up odd jobs. They save better than most servers, uh, even though they don't have as high paying jobs. They they always have a cushion, a little bit at least, because they don't want to take the they know how to take the risk a little better. Yeah, I mean, and also they, I mean, they send money back home a lot of times. So I don't know. It's just. They also have that more of like the hustler mentality, um, generally speaking. You know, I know that's one guy, Javier, who I love dearly. He's I shout him out in my resume for teaching me how to carry a lot of plates. Um, him and his wife Maria, they from the first day I ever started working in restaurants, they took me under their wing and I speak very poor Spanish, but I try a little bit and uh I love them, you know, like they're they call me their baby and they're a little, they're a couple years older than me, but, um, I was like, they're, they wanted to teach me everything they knew. 
and that is their hospitality more than more than most even though they don't speak great english they want to take care of people they want to serve people and, and, uh, and, and, they, and, and they work so hard you just reminded me too waiter skills are obviously my own important micro skill oh i mean we just scratch the surface really yeah. i mean there's so many different little little skills that you kind of pick up along the way and some are more important than others but they're all they all kind of complete the whole picture of hospitality i guess when all that was unfolding essentially everybody got put on furlough across the whole city there was no game plan about hey we're going to open up hey your jobs are going to come back like who we're going to rehire there was nothing going on there was a lot of talk about maybe we're going to shut down maybe we're going to open and be unsafe like what capacity can we do it was just so, the uncertainty level was through the roof. I had employees that were in nursing school that were, you know, had a second job. They, you know, didn't get paid as much, but that was going to be their career. Um, eventually, once they had enough training and they were trying to get out of the restaurant industry, all those people gone for good. You know, yeah. it was about 20% of my staff, um, at least with the higher skill positions, right? Like food runner. Javier is like the best food runner in the game, best to ever do it, in my opinion. Um, and that's a skill of its own. Mm. But, you know, as much as I wanted him to become a server and try to train him up, he never was interested. And, you know, it would have been hard for him to, to just language barrier wise. He should move to Miami. Get to that point. Miami. Yeah. I mean, Miami, everyone speaks Spanish. Yeah. So that's true. He likes Atlanta. Yeah. He has some kids here, so he's been here for a long time. And I don't think he wants to do that. He just likes running food, you know. And to be honest with you, my favorite job I ever had was running food. So running you know, food is just taking the food to the table from the kitchen? From the kitchen to the table. You've never seen customers so happy. Yeah. You know, that's when they get their food. That's the ha that's the happiest they are all night. <laughs> so Yeah, that's true. Uh, so you get to see them then and I love that job. I only had it for a month, but I really did like that job. Um, you don't get paid enough though. So it's hard to, hard to do, but yeah, so about 20, 25%, I would say of the whole industry left permanently or semi-permanently. Um, yeah. The only reason why, why it's somewhere in between semi-permanently and permanently is that a lot of people are not coming back because they found something else to do during this past year. And uh, the, the next generation is not yet trained. So it actually right. is a, a little bit more than a semi-permanent problem. Yeah, and there's a lot, I mean, the restaurant industry does not look good right now. Yeah, so no, nobody's like saying, boy, I can't wait to go get back to food running because you don't even know if you're gonna, if two weeks from now there's not gonna be a third wave and everything's gonna close down again. Yeah, and if I'm 22 or 23 coming out of college or if I'm 20 and in college, I don't really want to work in a restaurant right now. Like, it was fun because you got to party with everybody afterwards. You got to eat good food. You know, it's just not the same. It's not the same. It's just not the same, like, lifestyle even. You know, we, yeah. all, we all go to work now. We're wearing masks all the time. I don't even know what my coworkers really look like. Yeah. Right. So it's harder it's to like totally different than when I started. So how does this affect obviously hiring is important, but what are the what are the nuances? So the nuances are these businesses make money. 
we have three, four million dollars a year. Yeah, I know the the margins are a little slimmer than than a lot of other industries, especially with steakhouse type of food. You know, food cost is pretty high. The building, you know, all, it takes a lot of money to run it. The biggest problem that exists is it was never a profession. It was a job. And I mean, when I started serving, my grandpa stopped talking to me. You know, he didn't want me to be in restaurants. He passed away and it was sad for me because we didn't have a great relationship at the end, even though we had a great relationship for most of my life because he was so adamant that I not go into restaurants. Wow. And I loved it. And I saw the potential. I see the potential now. I saw it then. I was like, this is just poorly run. You know, he said, oh, there's, it's a cash business. You can't trust employees. You know, don't, don't ever go into that because you're going to, everybody's going to steal from you. That's true to this day. You know, bartenders are stealing. I mean, not, not at my jobs currently, but I still know it to be a fact in the industry. It draws a certain type of, a type of crowd because, it is a kind of gig industry. Yeah. It is super fun. There is a high level of mastery of all these different skills. And, you know, you can have some autonomy depending on what you're, you know, all the things that I think make a career great uh, or exciting or make me want to do it. I think they can exist pretty easily with some pretty, you know, not, not huge changes but everybody's just kind of stuck in the ways that they, they think about hiring. So for example, at my, uh, at my current job, this place called the chest and they, it's an amazing restaurant. Chris Grossman is like the most highly touted chef to come out of Atlanta in the last 20 years, probably super talented guy. Uh, yeah. Chris Grossman, uh, the chest is where he's at now. He was at Atlas, uh, another restaurant called Aria both fine dining in Atlanta. He was at the French laundry in between. So he's got some serious chops and now he's a partial owner um, of the restaurant. And, you know, they're doing the same stuff that every restaurant has always tried to do in the, ter- in terms of hiring. Um, so they offer a hundred dollars as a referral fee, you know, or if you can get a server in or a bartender or whatever. And are how often do they need new people? Always. I have not been there a day when they haven't asked me, hey, Jason, do you know anybody? Can I get a food runner? Do you know a server? We're looking for five cooks. So, so if they had like a software solution where instead of saying, hey, Jason, do you know XYZ and hoping to God that you do know someone who's available right then magically, if they had a software solution, they could at the very least also use that. Yeah. I mean, they're using LinkedIn, they're using indeed they're using Facebook. They're using every method they possibly can think of. These are very good paying server jobs. Very good paying like two, $300 a night for seven hours of not super hard work, which is pretty solid in this industry. Um, Oh my God. The menu looks great. Yeah. It's killer. Oh man, I want this potato and bacon crusted Georgia mountain trout. That's the number. That's his, that's his, uh, specialty dish. Really? Oh, I love that. I I love the sound of that. Yeah. Um, we do like this, there's a 22, it's not on the menu. It's like a 24 ounce dry age, dry age ribeye. Why why does he crust it with potato 
as opposed to breadcrumbs? It's a good question. I'm still learning the menu a little bit. I started there not too long ago and I haven't uh, served there yet, but that is a good question that I will find out the answer to. So interesting. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H-I-M-S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. All right, so let's think about this. Like, what is a software solution? Like, what what would be better than Indeed? I mean, the problem with Indeed or LinkedIn is that you're running into a billion people when you're trying to find 10 out of a billion people who want a job as a waiter in Atlanta. Yeah, I mean, it feels like not, feels like a structural issue more so than a access kind of issue. It doesn't feel like it's a problem with the matching process as much as it's just like a problem with the job itself. What do you mean? I don't know why anybody would want to just become a server now. Yeah. You know, and there's just not enough servers to fill all the positions. People don't want to switch without guarantees. You know, I could tell somebody, Hey, you can make $300 here a night instead of the 220 you're making. They may believe me. They may not, but they're not willing to switch from their 220 and the off chance that I'm lying or wrong. Yeah. Um, so it's hard, it's a hard number, you know, it's hard to guarantee. They know that the second, let's say, God forbid, there's a variant that makes the vaccine useless and we have to go back. They know what's going to happen and everybody will be, you know, back on furlough and hopefully the government does the right thing. It's just kind of a shitty, I don't know. Yeah, and the government, there'll be a pressure at some point that the government can't do it forever. Structurally, there's a breakdown in the system itself, like how people choose to be in the system and then and then discovery of those people who choose to be in it. 
So is there a solution? I think so. I think, you know, professionalize it, make it a career instead of a, a gig. And I, I don't actually know this, but maybe you could, I'm sure you have some insight. Um, when other industries are, have a lack of workers, do they try to uh, branch out from people that, yeah, servers don't need to be, ser- you know, they don't need to be servers. You know, if I could get maybe car salesmen or, you know, other type of salespeople to become servers, I'm sure other industries have done that. I know real estate agents are often former servers. Yeah. Why don't, why can't we get, you know, why can't we get real estate agents to become servers? Why is it always one way? It's always people leaving restaurants to go to do other things. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is like take real estate agents, real estate agents are, and many professions are licensed are like to be a waiter is there's no license, right? Yeah. Well, and most of the time. Yeah. And so I wonder, a pouring permit. I, I wonder if you can create some kind of hierarchy, some sort of licensing system so that someone's always a waiter once they're a waiter because they've gotten their second degree certificate and they go back for continuing education somehow. And so there's, and, and, and so there's always a list to draw upon because you know who all the certified people are because it's an industry now, it's a licensed industry. I wonder would people be interested in, hey, get your, you know, stand out above the rest, get your, you know, restaurant certificate so you could work in the restaurant industry and at, at any time. You're first in line in the restaurant industry. Yeah, and I love that idea, and I thought that should be a thing for a long time because, you know, I think. But right now, nobody would ever go to become a, you know, yeah, go to any school to be a server because you can just get any job you want. You know, there's no barrier now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely, like that that should be a thing, <laughs> you know, and you should, and restaurants should agree to pay more for those people. You know, but restaurants don't pay anything for servers as is now. How many emails? How many, how many email addresses do you have just from your own personal connections and stuff of people who, you know, are servers? How many email addresses of servers do I have? Yeah. Ooh. Honestly, probably not a ton uh 50 okay okay so Seven, maybe maybe 100 but so what what if i'm and i'm just thinking out loud, I, I haven't thought through this idea at all what if you were to email all those 50 people and say listen i want to build a, a list for the restaurant industry which is about to come back strongly um you know of all the servers in the industry i know and so this way it's easy for them to find jobs once, once the jobs are needed. And, uh, and then I'm also going to go to all the restaurant owners and, you know, on a regular basis, see what jobs they need. Cause I feel like there's, and you're just being totally honest with the people you email. So you email these 50 people and you say, uh, can you email all the servers, you know, and ask them to send me an email. So this way then let's say you go from 50 email addresses to a thousand hypothetically. I'm just making this up. Huh. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You might need to have incentives for them to do it. 
so we could think about that down the road. Like maybe they get cut in on the referral fees, um, depending on, you know, almost like a multi-level marketing thing, but not yeah. as schemey. Like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's a way to track, uh, how people are coming to you, but you basically just put together a list. And since you know, every restaurant owner needs servers every day, you go to the restaurant owners and say, listen, you're using, I know what you're doing. You're using indeed.com. So you're hitting software engineers and trying to find servers. Well, I have a list of 12,000 servers in the Atlanta area and I know who has jobs and at what restaurants and where they worked. And when you need a job, I'll place it and I'll do, do half your referral fee that you usually give. So $50 instead of a hundred. So I'm just thinking out loud of like something manually you can do that could later be automated as software. Yeah. So, um, I like it. Uh, I do like the idea. Um, uh, and then, and then just to add to that, once yeah. the once they're on your list, you could send out content, you know, every other day or every day, like, Oh, you know, this restaurant, they're looking at opening up another place in, you know, this area or in this restaurant, they just switched their menu. Here's the old one. Here's the new one. Which one do you like better? You know, let's take a poll, anonymous poll. Like, I wonder if you could have like ongoing content and also create a Facebook group around it so they could right. communicate with each other. Or maybe you don't want to do that because then it might be too much. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. Well, there there are like some type. And we have that Giving Kitchen Facebook page that's for specifically for Atlanta where a lot of service industry people kind of communicate on a whole bunch of different issues, post you know, different things, but, um, but I think, but I'm, I, I want like the, the problem is, is, you know, everybody that wants to leave a restaurant is always scared to leave that restaurant because they kind of know how much money they make consistently. And they're worried that the next place they go, they're going to be the low man on the totem pole. Right. So but, all... but, but you're also telling me a lot of people uh, are servers, but don't currently have serving jobs, or maybe they have suboptimal serving jobs. So if you have a list of not 50 people, but 10,000 people, some of those 10,000 yeah. are not only ready to work, but they're also good at their job. They weren't just like fired from their last 10 jobs. They were, they're actually good. And right. so when you have like a list of 10,000, you're much more likely to avoid those problems. Okay. I would think. Yeah. Like so many on those 10,000, let's say 80% of them will be satisfied with their jobs and they're not going to leave unless there's a, a significant pay increase. But you increase the chances that you won't have to do a pay increase if you have a list of, if you have a higher supply and the demand stays the same, value sort of goes down or stays the same. So you don't have to, the restaurant owner won't have to increase the pay. And I know part of this is to ideally increase the pay, but you're also going to have on your list people who are professionals and that might just naturally increase the pay. Right. Okay. So I'm just thinking, I'm just, Do you think, yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about, um, yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about like trying to, be the link in the networking. Uh, well, and you don't have to be. Had. Yeah. I'm wondering if this is just, just an experiment to see if manually, if this works, and then you can automate it. You know, so Craigslist, 
uh-huh. you know, Craigslist started by this guy, Craig Newmark. He basically sent out an email to his friends. Hey, here's the things happening in San Francisco um, this week. And they emailed it out to a bunch of people. And then people started signing up for his list. And then he added, oh, here's the apartments for rent in San Francisco. Here's this, here's that. And then he started doing it in every city and he automated it all. He's not involved at all in the company. It's still called Craigslist. Same thing happened with another company called Angie's List, which is yeah. worth something like 400 million. And uh, Craigslist was worth billions now. And I wonder if you just start off manually, but then as once you see that, okay, people seem on both sides of the equation, the sellers and the buyers, they're excited. And then you can automate it. And, you know, a typical business model, um, almost every business could be thought about this way, actually. But a, a great business mo- way to think about business is somebody, some group of people has, have enormous excess of something. They have, for instance, they have many empty bedrooms in their house. And then other people want access to that excess. So I'm traveling to Tennessee. Let's say I'm tra- traveling to Nashville. I need to stay in one of these extra rooms because all the hotels are booked. The business is the is the platform in the middle, whether it's a human or a, a, a software system. So Airbnb matches people who have an excess of rooms to people who want access to those rooms. Uber matches people who have an excess of empty car seats to people who want access to those car seats in a specific area at a specific time. And all these businesses can be started manually to test the idea, but then you quickly move to a software solution. Yeah. The, the trick is getting people to sign up on both sides. Right. That's the hardest part. Well, I mean, there are other, hard, so the, the reason why there's a platform in the middle is you handle the, it, it's a safe way to handle the transaction. So I don't have to deal directly with the owner of a house and then he rips me off um, or the owner of a car or whatever. And, you know, so there's some mediation and there's some, um, security issues taken care of. So the platform's important. Like everybody wants to know this is a secure platform. The owners want to know I'm getting good people. The people want to know I'm getting into a good restaurant and I could trust the situation. And, uh, you know, so that's, you know, but then how do you get people to sign up? Like how does Uber win over Lyft? Some of the incentives are monetary. Some of it is the larger you are, the, the more people will sign up with you because that's how you get business. And so, so it kind of feeds on itself. That there's like a network effect, um, yeah. and the same you would have the same kind of network effect. So then, the initial thing is, how do you get that initial bunch? But you get the initial bunch just because you know the people on both sides, and you could think of the right language and the right incentives, or you could experiment a little bit to get figure out how to get people to share what you're doing, so that other people sign up, both on the owner side and on the server side. Okay, so. I'm trying to think about how to ask this in terms of like Airbnb or something similar. So Airbnb, you have the people that have extra rooms or whatever, and then you have people that need a room. So the people that need a room are more like the servers and the people that have the extra rooms are more like the employers in this analogy. Yeah. So the, um, um, no, actually it's the other way around. So the, the employees have an excess of basic restaurant skills and the owners need to they need some restaurant skills working in their restaurant so the owners okay. are the ones who Great. actually need the access yeah that makes way more sense okay so what happens when the renters need the room right so the owners need the employees and there's just not enough rooms um price goes up right 
So uh, the owners need servers and there's not enough servers. So yeah, they would be willing to pay more. Well, sticking with the Airbnb model, right? People that want to rent a space, there's a lot of them. And the people that have the rooms, there's not as many. Right. Think of like a big event happening in a smaller town. Right. So people would be willing to pay more. Except they're not. They're just unwilling to. And then all they do all day long is complain about how there's no rooms. That's what's happening now. But what will happen to the restaurant in the long run if that continues? Yeah, exactly. So that's the problem I'm interested in. It's that's and that's what's happening now. So so but if they, there could be a system like this though allows for short-term spikes in pay and and which could come down when business goes back to normal. Cuz you can so you can say look, I'm going to I'm um I'm, I'm willing to pay $300 if I could just get someone on New Year's Eve working cuz you know, I, I know I'm going to, my liquor bill is going to be, or my liquor sales are going to be through the roof. So there could be short-term spikes when they need more people to, and there's not enough people available. Right. So they might do something like that for like a day or two or whatever. And that might be a thing like a temp agency for restaurants could be a, I mean, that, that could be a thing. But most, most people don't want that even, you know, because it is so specialized and by re restaurant to restaurant, you know? Yeah. Um, so like if I'm a great server and you want me to go to the Chastain to be a server for a really busy night and then I get asked, well, what's with the trout? And I don't have the answer. Like I just didn't have the answer. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a problem, right? So, uh, so it's hard to like get all the intricacies of, you know, a restaurant. It's not like I could have a temp do a host position, right? Mm -hmm. But when it comes to all the products that you need to know to be a server training takes like at least a week. So what's uh, your, what's your ideal, what's the ideal scenario of a system? So an idea would be restaurant owners would be willing to pay up for quality, for instance. But not even I don't know what my ideal is. I'm just I'll, all all I'm saying is I'm I'm seeing that this uh, you know there's way more demand for servers than there are actual servers at this point, and there's an unwillingness from restaurants to change the model at all, and so something's going to have to give at some point. Yeah, there so there will be enough pain to create change at some point and so, maybe we haven't hit that yet, but it's coming. So, Fact. okay. So how can, so, so we don't know yet. We know this is a big problem. We know you're an expert at it. So it does seem like worth looking into further. Um, so it's a, it's a valid spoke. Um, so there's two things we could do. One is just, we could put a pin in that and start exploring the next spoke. So we're going for breath rather than depth at this point, figuring out a bunch of viable things and then starting to see which ones we can explore a little further. I would say the one extra thing we can do here is send out an email, or you could think about how to do this and we could brainstorm this even next time, but how can we send out an email to your friends who are all servers and say, hey, I'm collecting the email addresses of basically every good server in Atlanta. 
and I only want, and you're, I'm sending you an email because I think you're a great server and I know you know how to analyze who else is a great server. Have them send me an email of all the good servers and then you can make that same offer to those people who, who sign up. And you can even set up a website and I could show you how to do that really easily. There's, there's plenty of sites where you could do that within five seconds. You can even set up a website to start collecting all the email addresses. And you could send out all these emails through that website. And so it collects everything through one ecosystem. And then you later on, you could migrate the email list somewhere else if you choose to. So that's one experimental way we can just start finding out the list of people who have the excess. Yeah, I can definitely, definitely do that. Like, let's, let's brainstorm on that because I think that's worth doing because at the very least, an email, let, let's say magically, you have an email list of 10,000 people in the Atlanta area who or in Georgia area who are good servers and, and it's 10,000. That email list is going to have more value than just for hiring. For instance, you might be able to sell them a, a course on, you know, restaurant, you know, owning a restaurant if they want to make that transition, or, or you might be able to send them a newsletter that has ads in it uh, about the restaurant business. And then restaurant owners who need servers or restaurant owners who simply want to advertise can advertise in your newsletter, yeah. or you could potentially okay. offer a higher end product uh, uh, that people would be willing to pay for. And you could do the same thing on the restaurant owner side. Like you could say, Hey, I'm putting together this email list of all servers. If you're interested in communicating to my list, you can sign up and it's a hundred dollar a month subscription or a $50 a month subscription, something. And, um, you can have a separate list of restaurant owners and, and they'd be willing to pay because it's so valuable to them to have access to 10,000 servers. So, yeah, that's great. So, so even, it makes a lot of sense too. Cause I'm like, I feel like I'm, and I think you picked up on it without me realizing it, but like there's more value in these, the really good quality people than what they're, uh, currently valued at. So I right. see like there's, there's upside for them regardless of how, you know, uh, whether it's getting them in front of the right employers or, uh, being able to send them information about restaurants and somehow advertise to them. But the, like, right. Because if someone's a good server, a lot of their friends who are not in the restaurant business are going to ask, Hey, what's a good rest? What's a good new hot restaurant to eat at? Right. And, like they're influencers. Like, I bet you get asked that more than I get asked that. No one ever asks me what's a good restaurant to eat at, but how many times a month would you say someone asks you what's a good restaurant to eat at? A uh, hundred at least. I mean, I talk about it all the time at my restaurant. Right. So, I mean, so I get asked zero times. So there's definitely, yeah. because you are a professional at this and, and people recognize that there is a quality spectrum in it, then we just proved it. I get asked zero times. You get asked hundreds of times. I'm at one end of the spectrum. You're at the other end of the spectrum. So it makes sense. There should be this one difference. There probably isn't a difference in how many people ask us, Hey, what's a good music? What's a good sports event I can go to this weekend. It's probably, probably little spectrum difference there, but huge spectrum difference. Yeah, roughly restaurant. zero. Yeah. 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 So, so you get asked a hundred times, I get asked zero. So, so having that list even makes you more like, I always try to think, with a business. Okay. Google has a trillion and a half dollar value. And how can I have, uh, how can I do what Google does 
will I have a trillion and a half dollar value? Well, I can't do what Google does, but here's what I can do. If you ask me anything, like James, do you have any ideas about a book I could write? I could say, well, I don't really, but uh, here's how I would think about it. And here's 10 ideas I've been thinking about. Why don't you see if that works? And if I just generally live my life that way, as if I were like this personal Google, it will create monetary value for me. Like maybe not a trillion and a half dollars, but maybe a million dollars or $5 million or whatever. And so, or LinkedIn, if you're always asking me, hey, I have a friend who needs a job. Do you know anyone? And I reach out to people I know and say, hey, do you know anyone who knows anyone who has a job available for this guy? And I'm good at that. So I'm like a mini LinkedIn. Again, who knows where the value will be, but I'll probably get some of the $20 billion value of LinkedIn that to accrue to myself personally. So when you act like these high value companies, even personally, it creates value. So what I'm saying is even manually, if we figure out how you can make this list on both sides, and so you sort of like perform almost like a personal Airbnb type business or, or personal restaurant specific LinkedIn business, that's automatically some value that accrues to you personally. And then if you productize it by turning it into a software system or automating it in some way, then that actually becomes a real business. Okay. But the first step is to, you know, make it a micro version of one of these successful companies and not necessarily worry about monetizing it like immediately. Right. Definitely not, not about, but monetizing it can happen pretty quickly, but you don't want to think about monetizing it immediately. So, um, I mean, as an example, um, I don't know if you follow, or maybe I told you this story, but Charlemagne, the God, he's a radio host, like an urban. I know. know. Oh, so, so, so I sent him a bunch of ideas about a book he should write. He said, let's do it together. And I resisted at first, but we ended up doing it. It was released the other day and it's like the best selling book on audible right now. And I didn't get paid anything, but if there's opportunities down the road that comes from that, I'll get paid. And if I do that constantly in my life, like sending these ideas out to people, ultimately I make a lot of money and that's actually what has happened. And so, uh, uh, but some things can happen faster than others. Like Craigslist monetized pretty quickly. Airbnb monetized pretty quickly. Uh, but, but I think the list itself has more value even than the initial business idea. We might not even know the right business idea until after you have the list. And so then that's why I'm just thinking the brainstorming here really is how do you, I think because you're trusted in the industry and you know a bunch of people who are trusted, that's the first step in getting a rather big list. Um, So, okay, let's put a a pin on that. And I think that's a good idea to manually at least experiment with. And then- Yeah, I can do that. The other thing is, is then I would start thinking of like another spoke that you think is really interesting right now um, to do or explore. Like you want to have, let's say five or six spokes identified, and then we can really figure out what, what are the best ones to choose? Or maybe all the ones would be, are worth taking the next step. That's the good thing about going for breath and a little depth is that we don't have to have a full business plan. We just have to have a first step on five different ideas and sure. see what happens. It's like we're fishing and we have five fishing lines and we see which one catches a fish or maybe multiple fishing lines catch a fish.
I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. we're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability, as well as its robust interior, are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Remember how I was telling you like the lack of communication between the reservation system and the point of sale? Yeah. I don't know if it's like too super time sensitive, specific to like kind of what's going on in the world now. Although I think it is bit like it is just kind of an interesting piece of the restaurant puzzle that is kind of underutilized. So I was talking to one of the servers that I used to work with that I now work with again at the Chastain. She was telling me that they're supposed to write, so they get the reservation system, you know, James coming in at seven o'clock. All right, we're going to put him at table 41. We drag him on the iPad to that table. Immediately, once he gets placed there, it's called like a dupe or a chit, gets printed. It says your name. It says, uh, you know, maybe you, you told the host that you're allergic to shellfish. And it's your birthday today, and we're celebrating your birthday. So the host will go over to the server, say, "Hey, this is table forty-one. You know, here's your here's your chit." Server will read it and say, "Okay, great." Most of the time, they don't really care unless it's a VIP or a birthday or anniversary or something that they need to be aware of, uh, or obviously dietary restriction. But if it's like a lot of times it'll say it wants to sit indoors and then the server doesn't give a fuck because, all right, they're already indoors. Hmm. There's nothing, there's nothing important on this. Um, and so what 
the Chastain is trying to do is getting their servers to put notes on all of the chits and hand them in at the end of the night for the manager with the detailed notes about the table. Hmm. So like what they like to order, what their temperament was like, if they were like fun and casual or if they were buttoned up and serious, you know, I asked the server, I was like, uh, so how's that working out? She said, I'm pretty sure I'm the only server that's doing it. And I'm not doing a very good job of it. Hmm. And I said, Oh, why is that? She goes, it's just so hard to like, you know, remember something I'm used to doing. The management doesn't really like force us to turn them in at the end of the night. It doesn't kind of like make, you know, a huge focus. It's just something that they'd like to do, but it's such a great idea. Yeah, um, and it's kind of silly that they have to do it so manually when they have when both the point of sale is already a computer and the reservation system is already a computer. You have to have this human taking notes on a piece of paper so that it can go from one to the other. So the reservation system has the the chit itself has in data form already all the these notes, and we already and the point of sales we know what they they ate, so that's the stuff we all know. Now, temperament, we don't know, but that might not be as important. Like the first step might be, you know, what do they eat? So if they ate, if they ate a dessert wine, for instance, you know, um, you could up, the server could potentially upsell them another uh, more expensive dessert wine. Or if they didn't have a dessert wine when they should have, uh, that's something the server can can see. Yeah, and if if they had a dessert wine, make sure you ask them if they would like a dessert wine. Because a lot of times people aren't just going to order it on their own. But if you ask, if you if they're prompted, then they will. Yeah, particularly if the last time they ate there, they had one. Um, they could even say like, you know, I know uh, I was told you ordered dessert wine. You know, if it's not creepy, I don't know how to do it. But if, if I was told you ordered dessert wine last time, we just got a new shipment of blah blah blah. Would you like to try that? Or yeah, and, and pair them with the same server again. So, hey, I remember last time you were here, you got a dessert wine. Even if you yeah. don't actually remember, you know that it happened because you have a, you have it there. And they're like, wow, I can't believe you. What a great memory. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if, so right now, what happens to the point of sale data? Do you save that? So I'm most familiar with Aloha, one of the more for like fine dining um, type of restaurants. And that data is saved forever. Uh, toast is the same way. I mean, I, you can search, you can go back months and see what was years and see what was on the table, table 41 at the first turn. And then if you have the reservation system, you can see who was actually sitting there. So if you had enough time in your day, you could go through and do all of that for sure. So let's see, Aloha, I'm looking them up right now. And actually, the people that started Aloha own the Chastain. Really? Or at least a part of the venture so, fund that. So it's just point of sale solutions. I think they have Lighthouse now too. They bought a couple of different that are, I think roughly that's pretty similar. So they do have like restaurant loyalty programs. Aloha does? Yeah, they have online ordering systems. They have kitchen production software. So send out fresh high quality food fast with kitchen production software and hardware designed by the best in the business. They have consumer engagement with drive brand loyalty and reward your best customers with restaurant loyalty, store value. But it doesn't look like they don't have anything that connects to reservation systems. I've done some research on it and maybe there is something, but I have yet to see that communication between a reservation system and a, and a point of sale. 
So, but they, but you're right. They do have in digital format and some probably easy to store way, uh, data on everybody who goes to a restaurant. They know their name. They know what they ordered. They, they know how loyal they are. And separately, we have, well, a they don't know the name. Oh, they don't know the name. How do they reward your best customers? I have no idea. That's a, you said that. And I was like, that, that's news to me. So how would you, how would you connect the restaurant, um, reservation system to the, the point of sale? or at least the data, like manually, how would you do it? If Manually, if you... how I would do it? So if I had infinite time, so I would grab my iPad with all the reservations on it. Mm -hmm. I would take it to the back of house terminal mm -hmm. uh, for the point of sale. And I would click on table 41. James, you're my first reservation that night. You came in at 530. I would look on my back of house point of sale and see your table. I can see everything you ordered and I can manually input it into the reservation system under your name. And now is this only important for restaurants that have repeat customers? Yes. Or do you think restaurants would share the information with each other with the idea to get more? They should, but they, I don't know. they probably would feel they're so competitive. Uh, that most of the time they feel, like, well, I got the data. I don't want to share it with my competitor, even though, you know, if both of them were sharing, it would benefit both of them. They don't really do a ton of like cross promotion in general. Sometimes they do. And there's certain, there definitely are certain chefs that like to work together better. But when it comes to like the business stuff, they usually stay pretty separate. Well, like for instance, like I own a comedy club. If other comedy clubs at like the level of my comedy club, say to me, Hey, we'll share all our customer data about what comedians, the customers show up for and what they order and so on. If you share yours in a common database, would I do it? I think I probably would do it actually. Yeah. Um, but you're much more forward thinking than most restaurateurs. Okay. So here's another thing. What if not only do you combine all this data, so you have it just in case there are a lot of repeat customers, but what if the restaurant then follows everybody on Instagram and, and tries to friend them all on Facebook and follows them all on Twitter. Cause you'll probably be able to find most of them because it's John McEnroe who lives in Atlanta and you'll see what he looks like and you'll probably, you might recognize him or whatever. And, or there might be only one John McEnroe in Atlanta who seems like the type of person who would go to your restaurant. So you can make some social media outreach too, uh, to, to each one of them after they've been to the restaurant. Yeah. And they wouldn't I mean, say no. They'd probably feel honored that hey, they're a special friend of the restaurant now. Yeah, I mean, I um, I did that personally. I have plenty of Facebook friends that I met in the restaurant. Something that should be done for sure. So I think that's another spoke. And and as opposed to like making an entire software system, I think there there is some benefit to you doing something manually. It doesn't have to be the infinite thing, but you still doing something manually and adding a social media component to maybe drive back second visits uh, and then seeing if matching this data or the, the point of sales to the reservations can increase um, the, the check value. And I bet you that could be manually done. And the, you're, the owner of the Chestane might even be willing to uh, do it just to see. And you could say you're not charging anything. You just want to see 
if you can increase to their revenues? Why would they say no to that? Yeah. With following through social media. Yeah, or some because 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 your your data only works if you get second visits. So the social media will help you get the second visits. Oh, and well, Castain has no problem with second visits. Okay, I see. I they are all second visits, third visits, fourth visits. You know what? Also, though, is here's the other thing, and this is an actually an interesting idea which I haven't really used in practice, but I wonder if anyone has, but. Once you know someone's name, let's say John McEnroe um, goes to the Chastain, spends a lot of money, so he's a great customer, and he ordered the bacon-crusted trout. And uh, what if you can make a Google ad where you target his name? So everybody does a Google search on their own name. And so they'll see a targeted ad just to them. It won't cost any money because it's hardly ever going to – the ad's hardly ever going to show. It's only going to show if his, if his name shows up or if he Googles himself. And what if you say is an ad, uh, whenever he Googles himself, he sees an ad from the Chastain. Hey, you know, uh, you know, we're trying extra, you know, honey glazed bacon, you know, on the, on the new menu item, a special on the trout today uh, with the honey glazed bacon and some other stuff and blah, blah, blah. And so he's, so that might be an interesting way to test even getting more visits from people who don't do second visits that much. That's interesting. Does everybody Google themselves? Um, I mean, I probably do at least once, once or twice a day. But you have things that pop up about you. Yeah. So maybe that's a special case. I don't know. But um, maybe that's the thing. I don't know. I, if I had things popping up about me, I would definitely Google myself all the time too. Or you could just target the entire list. The Chastain has a new menu for this week, you know, special holiday menu for this week only. Um, the chef chef is using his latest Parisian experiment or whatever. I don't know. And it goes to everybody who's ever been to, to the restaurant because you have all their names. Yeah. And we have all their email addresses too. Yeah. So you could send that out. Now, sometimes you have to get permission to, um, there's there's rules about that, but uh, uh, to send them an email, but sometimes yes, sometimes no. Particularly, well, here's what you could do though: if you become Facebook friends with all of them, then you could totally just put something on your Facebook feed and promote it to your friends, and that's your friend, the restaurant's friends or their customers. Right. So so then that's actually the cheapest way to do it. Um, so I think there's something there. So that's like a second spoke and a second step for that spoke which the second spoke is kind of connecting point of sales data with reservation data. And the, and the step for it is manually at least put together like the next thousand customers who eat there and see what you could do with them to increase revenues over the next two months. And then you can actually document, oh, we, we, we re revenues went up 50%, even seasonally. Uh, yeah. And so you can have a track record and a testimonial and then you can figure out what the next step is after that, which is either restaurants sharing data or a software system, or, you know, there's a bunch of possible next steps after that. Yeah. So, and then the other thing too, um, with that spoke, so right now the Chastain's issue is not getting people in. Well, they don't really have that many issues, but uh, well, they have the bigger issue that they, they have space that they can't use because they don't have enough servers, but that's from the first spoke. Right. Um, but when they bring people in, 
we say no to so many people. So it's not like trying to attract more people necessarily, but to upsell them so that the check average is higher. So maybe specifically like targeting, well, James just came in, he bought an $120 bottle of Cabernet. Um, Let's target him somehow to try to sell him this $150 uh, Cabernet. So, so there's two ways to upsell in this case. One is when they come in for the second visit, because you said a lot of second visits happen, you know, either you do this manually or you figure it out, but you'll know, let's say you have the infinite time and, and you're there. You know, hey, you say to the server, hey, I want you on this guy because you served him last time. I want you to say this. And you give her the line or him the line to say that upsells it. And you see how often that works. The other thing is, is that, if you know a bunch of people on your list like the $120 wine and you happen to have $150 wine, you could say some way or other, somehow you target them outside when they're not in the restaurant and say, hey, we just got this really high-end, you know, $160 wine of this, you know, it's the ver- the version that you're pretty sure you could upsell them. And then they might even come in for an extra visit just because you've got this wine. Right. So, so there's a couple of ways to upsell and then you could always downsell from the upsell. So if like you say, listen, you have the hundred, I remember you had the 120, you had this wine last time. You don't say the dollar amount, I guess. You yeah. This wine last time. We just got in this very special one from the Swiss Alps, whatever. And, and then they say, nah, I think I'll stick with the other one. And you can say, that's fine. But just so you know, even with the other one, we got this one vineyard that only puts out a new wine every three years and it's from the same region you like that one and you might want to try that. So you could downsell from the upsell. Nice, yeah. And still upsell from their old one. From the old one, right. So here's a $150 one. You don't want that, but let's... Okay, well, instead we have this $130 one, which is still higher than the 120. Right. So like, like every sale has an upsell and a downsell and every upsell has an upsell and a downsell. So you could just, you could always try to apply that as much as possible to, to every sale. Um, yeah. Like for instance, I sell a newsletter. So let's, let's say it's called the Altature Daily Newsletter. Um, and I sell it for a year for 50 bucks. As soon when someone purchased that, they see a message that at the online shopping cart, they say, listen, we can purchase this. But by the way, you, can, you just spend $50 for one year. For a hundred dollars, you could get this for a lifetime. So for just two years worth, you can get it for a lifetime. And they're like, "Now nah, I'm just going to try it for a year." So now they get the downsell from the upsell. Like, hey, would you also like to buy his book? It's ten bucks in the bookstore. It's sixteen, but we'll sell it to you for ten. And so that's the down, you know, the downsell from the upsell. Now, if they get the lifetime report, you could say you could say upsell then. Listen, James has some high end newsletters. You want to check them out? Like he has one for selling options, selling stock options. And it's three thousand dollars a year, but you know because you just got the lifetime report, we'll sell it to you for a thousand. They could be like, "Yeah, I'll take it." And then the upsell from that is, "Hey, he's got sixteen products like that for just three thousand, which is the price for any one of them. You can become uh, an alliance member and get all of them for life." And the downsell from that might be lifetime for the more expensive. Yeah. The high end report. They does got. it ever? Does it ever end? Is there? Yeah, yeah. It ends at the most. <laughs> it ends at the most expensive product because then there's nothing left okay. to sell. <laughs>
And even if they don't get the original newsletter for, for $50, maybe they buy the book for 10. And so at the very least, then you get $10 from, you might lose money on that, but you get their email address. And what we track is, is that over the years, just dealing with hundreds of thousands of customers, we know what the average email address is worth. So just getting an email address might be worth $30 for in lifetime value. So that means we'd wow. be willing to lose, let's say $20 or $15 in getting that email address. Sure. And the same thing, the same principles could apply to a restaurant, but they like to make money that second. But if they take a longer term view of just the value of just getting someone's email address and being able to communicate to them, they might, so they might be, yeah, go ahead. How do you convince people to get the longer term view? That's what I'm struggling to do most of all. And I think that's like kind of the underlying thing of all of the spokes potentially. That That's very hard because like I tried to explain to these. So I have this one business that sells newsletters and they know what the value of an email address is. Uh, so they, they know what the value of an email address is who's not a subscriber. They know what the value of an email address is who's a subscriber of the cheap stuff. They know what the lifetime value is of an email address combined with they bought the higher end stuff. So I tried to convince them there's also a lifetime value to someone who listens to my podcast, even we don't, even if we don't know their email address. So I was trying to convince them to market my podcast, but they just didn't see it because they had to calculate it. They had to have a method of calculating it exactly. And there was no way to do it. Um, and I tried to figure out ways and they just, it wasn't their thing. They, it wasn't their business to figure that out. So you might not be able to um, convince people of that. But yeah. the, the main way is data. So if you start off with something simple, like what you were talking about, just manually connecting the point of sales with the reservation system, that's simple. And so they can, uh, and you could show them, look, this guy came back and instead of spending, and instead of just coming back with his wife, he brought his group of friends. And instead of spending a hundred dollars a person, they spent $150 a person, you know, then the restaurant owner. I know what can, I'm going to do. Hmm? I know what I'm, I know how to test this. Okay. So on Resi, you can, like, let's say, uh, you know, Saturdays tomorrow. So I can see the reservations for Saturday. I can go through, I can see how many times every person has been there. Mm -hmm. And then I can click on them. I can see their history of when they were, when they showed up and I can go back and I can collect previous data. Ah, yeah. For only the ones that have been there more than, you know, like let's say three or more times. Yeah. See if, and see if I can use that data to increase their check averages for the following visit. And you're friends with the service, right? They're not going to be annoyed at you doing this. So you could basically say, listen, I want to put you on this guy and I want you to say these things. And if they say that and come back to me with what they, how they respond and we'll kind of strategize throughout their meal. And so you'd have to be very active during the meal itself, I think. Yeah. Well, so, I could try both. I could try being active during the meal and I can try just having it on the dupe like it would be if I wasn't there. Right, right. So, uh, like if, if it was automated, I wouldn't be there telling them what to do every time, but I can try both to see if one's better than the other. Yeah. So let's, let's see. So what are, what are the factors? There's overall table, uh, sales. There's, Sales per person. Yep. There's repeat visits. There's specifically, do they take the suggestions 
or not that you've come up with. Now, by the way, just because they don't take the suggestions, but the ticket sales are still higher, that might be a good outcome. Is that because maybe the server is making more suggestions, maybe they feel like they have more choices and they're willing to spend uh, spend a little more. So you know, yeah. even if they don't take the suggestions, offering the suggestions might be the value as opposed to them taking it. Um, right. So what's another factor that demonstrates success? I guess if they do a review. Yeah. What might be another factor? Time between that visit and the next visit. Yeah. So there's a couple ways you can measure success. Like, like at least because the more ways you can measure success, the more ways you can convince the restaurant owner, this is something of value. Like right. two or two or three of these aspects might be relevant to them. And I guess profits per table per visit, like they buy the more profitable items, which is hard. Cause I don't, but the, but the restaurant owner might know, but okay. I, I, I throw will. it in there, but maybe Somewhat. it's not. Yeah, no, I, I could, it, it, it would take a lot more communication and information than I have easy access to. All right. So look, so we, now we have two spokes with two second steps. You don't have to do anything yet. Maybe just think about these things, but I think this starts narrowing in on what might be a way to monetize your extreme knowledge. Like, you're an example of someone who has excess of something and somebody else wants access to it. So you have an excess of restaurant knowledge on a wide variety of areas that ranging from ownership and management to serving to being a customer. So restaurant owners in particular, but also maybe restaurant employees might want to have access to your knowledge. So we're figuring out as many things as possible that you could be in the middle of. So people are willing to use you as essentially a platform and also share data with you. Um, and then once we figure out the different spokes that work, that's the things you can scale. Like, okay, I need to hire a programmer for this, or I need to find a more scalable solution for this and, and on and on. Cool. And uh, yes, is that something that's even like possible to do to program some device that can connect to both the reservation system and yeah. the point of sale? Let me see. Is that like something that can be even done? Yeah, let me see. I can, I, there's an easy way to see. Yeah. So Resi, for instance, yes. The answer is yes, that you absolutely could do that. And, uh, what was the other system? Is it API? Is that? Yeah. I don't know anything. Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. API is the word. The one so, we're using right now is called Revel. Re Revel does have an API. Yeah. In fact, Revel has a whole blog on how re restaurants can benefit from their API. So for instance, customer engagement. Implementing an open API system is a key part of customer retention strategy. So uh, by integrating CRM applications, so, so they're assuming a, a restaurant might have some database to keep track of all their customers. I don't know if such a thing exists or not, but they can say you can, inter you can interface your database of customers, even if it's like an Excel spreadsheet, uh, in, using the API, you can integrate with uh, Revel. So that, so that's, that's essentially what you're doing. So, so we might find during the course of this that there are competitors, but competitors are okay. That, that it just shows that it's a valid business, that there's competitors. Right. And then the next step of knowing there's a competitor is figuring out at least one feature you can offer that they don't offer, which shouldn't be cool. too hard given that you have a lot of knowledge. So yeah, these are two spokes. We'll think of more and then think of more how you can do these things manually. And let's, let's talk again after uh, we play next week. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.